The guest today is Liz Carlisle, who is an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program at the University of California in Santa Barbara. She has been working there on the sustainability of food production. And she holds a PhD in geography from UC Berkeley, and interestingly, a BA in folklore and mythology from Harvard. And she has also served formerly as legislative correspondent for agriculture and natural resources in the office of U.S. Senator John Tester. She has written articles, numerous articles in major newspapers and magazines, and she's the author of two important books, Lentil Underground, um, which was the winner of the 2016 Montana Book Award and Grain by Grain, uh, which she co-authored with farmer uh, Bob Quinn. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you for that generous introduction. So I'm really curious, you have a very impressive and interesting career path. Um, I should have mentioned you're also a country singer, if I'm correct, which makes it even more intriguing. So I was, <laughs> um, so I was wondering, um, would, you know, would you mind talking a little bit about how you got into the field that you're currently in and what steps you took and what really made the biggest difference? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think it all started for me with um, conversations with my grandmother who lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl, um, which of course was a great tragedy of um, the opposite of soil health in the U.S. in the 1930s. Um, and I think she was influential to me for a couple reasons. One, she clearly was a product of her agrarian childhood. She was so deeply connected to the natural world and um, so much of what I loved about who she was came from that connection to the natural world. And of course, she um, you know, spoke to me quite candidly about the human tragedy that resulted from this failure to care for soil. Um, and I guess, you know, my career has kind of been uh, trying to understand all the dimensions of that story of what went wrong with agriculture in this country um, and what we can do to fix it. So, um, yeah, as an undergraduate in folklore and mythology, I was interested in hearing more stories from people like my grandmother um, who were part of these rural um, agrarian traditions. Um, and then as a country singer, I was trying to tell those stories in ways that were hopeful and hopefully leading the way to a, you know, revival of sustainable agriculture in our culture. Um, but while I was traveling around the country, I heard a lot of really hard stories that had common refrains, you know, that were basically about the economy of the food system in this country and the political economy and how difficult it is really to be a land steward in the context of you know, contemporary commodity agriculture in the U.S., that people um, loved their land and wanted to farm in this way, but in order to make a living, they were sort of caught in this commodity trap of using chemicals and farming the varieties of seeds that required those chemicals and selling to the only elevator in town that then shipped something off to a processor and it ends up in somebody's body as processed food and then they see you for some kind of a chronic disease, <laughs> um, you as a doctor. Uh, so that's what spurred me to um, go into policy and work for Senator John Tester, who was an organic farmer from Montana who got elected as a total kind of come from behind dark horse candidate um, 
and totally inspired me. Um, and through that work, I started to meet these farmers who were, you know, trying a different way, essentially. And I, I started to get tapped into the regenerative organic movement. That word wasn't really being used that much at that time, but in my own home state of Montana, of farmers who'd said, we don't want to use chemicals, whether that was for health reasons, environmental reasons, economic reasons. And we want to be able to do this biologically. We want to have viable ecosystems um, that don't require these outside inputs that then you know, make us uh, beholden to the prices of those inputs and the companies that manufacture them. And so it was really from these farmers, um, you know, now as a graduate student, that I started to learn about soil um, and start to gain an appreciation really for both, you know, the beauty that my grandmother had experienced in the prairies um, of Western Nebraska and the tragedy of what's happened to lands like that. The whole tragedy, you know, starting with genocide of the indigenous people who were strongly connected to those soil-based ecosystems. Um, the whole long history of exploiting the labor of people of color in agriculture. Um, and, and so then you get, you know, people like my grandmother's family um, on this land that they don't have a deep enough connection to and with, you know, an industry that forces them to overplow. And so, you know, that's all of the, the pieces that I'm trying to pick up and figure out um, how might we heal our soils and our society? Yeah, I mean, I love the way that you, um, you know, point towards this concept that, I mean, I, I like to use the concept One Health. Mm. And it's, it's really something that I'm focusing my, the book I'm currently working on. And um, you really emphasize these points. I mean, a lot of these things are interconnected. Like what I'm dealing with at the end process are these chronic diseases. And really a, um, I mean, it's not just the pandemic of um, COVID-19. It's, it's really, there's a, uh, a public health crisis in all these diseases that we have that are related to the unhealthy food. And then if you look at it, it has to do with the kind of food we eat and how the food is grown and processed and it gets into the soil and it gets into the climate. It's really, um, once you start looking into it, you realize it's, it's all one interconnected system that is, um, has gone in the wrong direction. And um, so, one, so in terms of the healing, um, one, one topic that you have emphasized um, a lot is this regenerative organic agriculture as, as one way to, to do good for the soil and do good for the, the plants and, and, and the environment. Could you explain? So most people probably have not heard of that term. They, there's still controversy to my surprise about uh, the benefits of organic, uh, the organic label. A lot of people say oh, it's not worth it to spend that extra money. Uh, but could you explain a little bit about the, uh, the ROA, the re uh, regenerative organic agriculture system concept? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this term is, is relatively new but it's really a revival um, in the U.S. of um, very old practices that um, you know, have been known to indigenous people around the world for thousands of years. Um, so you know, this is time-tested wisdom, but a, a new concept that's really highlighting in these times, you know, how do we fix the problems that we have now through some of these solutions that have existed for a long time. So regenerative organic agriculture um, is sort of building on organic 
an organic certification, which means um, you know, essentially no disallowed synthetic chemicals are being used on food. And for many organic farmers, that also means a really robust concept of continually feeding the soil, having an ecological um, you know, means of pest management so that the farm really is a self-supporting ecosystem. That's what the organic movement was really about, um, starting in the late, well, really starting in the 30s and 40s among a small group of people but kind of gaining steam in the counterculture in the late 60s and early 70s. So regenerative organic is a term um, that the Rodale Institute started using in the 80s, and they were a big part of this U.S. organic movement starting in the 40s. Um, and it's come into use more broadly in the last few years to kind of highlight the need for an organic agriculture that's not using external chemicals um, to rely on soil health. So to really call on organic agriculture to not just avoid the bad stuff, but to really proactively um, create these highly functional ecosystems that will store carbon in the soil, that will um, you know, provide lots of habitat for pollinators and beneficial insects, and, and ultimately be a contributor to the ecosystems around us, um, you know, rather than just a sort of input substitution organics, which is where you take you know, biological pesticides and use them instead of the chemical pesticides and you take biological fertilizers and use them instead of the chemical fertilizers, but you don't really create a self-supporting ecosystem. So regenerative organic agriculture, you know, again, in the context of contemporary U.S. industrial agriculture, it's kind of, um, you know, the gold standard for a conversion to something that looks more like a healthy indigenous traditional farming system. Now, do you, I mean, it makes obviously perfect sense to me uh, as a physician who is concerned about, you know, health and uh, what the consequences are, not just for the health of the soil, but also the health of humans who eat this food. Do you think that ROA has any realistic chance uh, against the onslaught uh, and the massive lobbying power of industrial agriculture? <laughs> it's a tough challenge, you know, and I have colleagues who've been at this for a whole career um, and have seen the power of, um, you know, those large agribusiness firms that can lobby for the laws that they want. Um, but at the same time, you know, this movement has also gained a lot of power. And I think um, right now is a really exciting moment because you see a lot of collaboration between people like yourself who are interested in health. Um, environmental groups who see the connection between human health and environment, and a lot of justice groups uh, who are fighting for racial justice, economic justice, and really see this transition in our food system as central um, to that, that vision of economic and social justice. So I think there is um, unprecedented power, actually, in this movement for a transition because it brings so many um, streams together, so many communities together. Um, I do think it'll be, uh, you know, as Dr. King said, it's going to be the long arc, <laughs> um, you know, to bend towards justice and regenerative agriculture. Um, but I do think we're going in that direction. And ultimately, um, you know, industrial agriculture is undermining itself. Um, it, it is fragile. It is being propped up. Um, and so the question for me is how quickly do we transition so that we can um, you know, ensure less suffering in that transition rather than, you know, the bottom drops out and everybody who's vulnerable doesn't have a sort of successor food system to support them. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you look at this from a, from a public health crisis, so right now we're dealing with obesity and metabolic syndrome and all the consequences of this 
unsustainable food production. But in the future, it could switch to the opposite. I mean, it could switch to starvation and not being able to um, feed the, you know, the world's population the way we're currently doing that. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, there's a long way, there's many steps in between. And, uh, but some people have talked about these pandemics really being in some ways a consequence of how, you know, that there's something fundamentally wrong, how we interact with, um, I mean, it could happen in any of the meatpacking plants. And for the first time, we get a, a deep insight of what actually happens there, both to the, the slave labor in these places, but also to the animals. And, um, and so in my opinion, if, if humans don't respond, you know, just out of logic. I mean, we, we see this all the time now that, that, you know, half of the population does no longer believe in science or logic. It's, it's all um, driven by emotions and, and, you know, political orientation. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, it makes me optimistic. Certainly you talk to somebody like yourself, but also been really impressed by um, meeting with uh, Yvonne Chouinard and uh, listening to him uh, talking about this topic. When I first talked to him about it, it quite honestly, as a physician and gastroenterologist, it didn't make that much sense to me the first time. But in the meantime, it's, it's absolutely clear to me, not only how important that is, but also how important it is to have business leaders like him who actually can, can influence a fairly large section of the population uh, you know, to consider that. So it's, uh, so I, I think you have answered this, this question, you know, why regenerative organic agriculture is important for, for the health of the planet. I mean, there's many reasons in terms of climate change. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's so many dimensions of that. I think what's been highlighted most in the media is the idea that carbon can actually be sequestered in the soil through regenerative organic practices, which is mostly um, things like putting organic matter back to the soil through composting or um, growing a cover crop, a soil building crop in the off season um, using mulch. Um, but also redesigning farming systems so that they actually generate more soil organic matter in the first place. So having more perennials, um, you know, the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas is working on developing a perennial grain crop. Um, we already have lots of perennial crops, you know, agroforestry systems that again, you know, have existed in indigenous farming systems for long periods of time. And the thing about a perennial crop is its roots are in the ground all year long. And those root exudates are actually supplying the soil with this organic matter um, in a form that's actually more likely to ultimately be stored um, as sequestered carbon. So that pathway, I think, has gotten a little bit more attention. Um, but there's lots of other ways regenerative organic agriculture actually connects to climate change. Um, for example, um, emissions of nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas that's many hundreds of times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Um, that's a big problem that's connected to over-application of chemical nitrogen fertilizer. Um, well, organic agriculture doesn't use chemical nitrogen fertilizer. And if you have a regenerative organic system, you're taking up the nitrogen in that system and continually using it so you don't lose it to the atmosphere. Wherever the nitrogen came from, if it's organic or um, synthetic, that's a danger. But with a good regenerative organic system, you keep it in the system and you utilize it as nutrients in that ecosystem and then nutrients in people's bodies. 
Um, and then, you know, I think a crisis that's connected to climate change is the biodiversity crisis, right? The sixth extinction. Um, we can actually be cultivating biodiversity and hosting biodiversity through our agriculture with, you know, these regenerative systems that are very diverse, as opposed to having, you know, farms look like a dead zone to a butterfly or a pollinator or any kind of species that's needing to migrate through that area to get where it's going. So, you know, in the water crisis, right? I mean, that's another one connected to the climate crisis. Regenerative organic systems can store more water in the soil. That's another incredible thing about soil organic matter is it allows you to store, like say in California, right? We get all our rain in the winter. And then we have this long and getting longer summer dry season, right? And it's really hard on crops. But if you have soil organic matter, um, you know, at a high rate, you know, say four or 5%, rather than the one to two that you see on an industrial farm, you can store that winter moisture in the soil and then it'll be there for you in the summer. And, and also if you have floods, like they saw in the Midwest last season, um, if you have a lot of soil organic matter, you can better store that moisture so it doesn't, you know, basically turn your field into a swamp. So, so many ways in which regenerative organic agriculture not only helps us mitigate climate change and reduce emissions, but also be more resilient in the face of, you know, a warming world and more variable temperature. So that, again, our food security isn't jeopardized um, as much by these, um, you know, variable temperatures and the climate crisis. Yeah, one thing, you know, listening to you and, and just thinking about this, these concepts. So many of these practices um, had been uh, popular amongst indigenous populations, Native Americans, definitely in interaction with the prairie, grassland. <clears throat> but also going back further thousands of years, um, there's been a sort of an intrinsic wisdom um, of how to treat, how important it is to treat the earth and the soil and, uh, in, in a very different way. And then there was kind of a, an, a, a reconnection to these ancient concepts in the 60s, um, but unfortunately was rapidly marginalized. You know, it was just these crazy hippies that are doing all these things. And it, to me, it's fascinating how it disappeared, you know, after the 70s, was totally replaced by, you know, the reductionistic uh, worldview. And it's come to the extremes. And, and now it's gradually coming back in that sort of a, you know, mainstream fashion. So um, this, it's kind of a fascinating phenomenon. It's always been around. It's always been knowledge. Not, not, it's not rocket science that we, we use rocket science now to understand it and, and justify it. But in people have practices without any science, you know, just with their um, uh, ancestral and traditional knowledge base. Yeah, and you know, I think this is actually another connection to health um, and a connection to mental health. Um, there's a term, uh, species loneliness. Um, but I think, you know, much of the depression epidemic that we see right now is it's about this sense of not belonging, you know, or being disconnected. We have lots of ways of engaging that don't give people that sense of deep belonging and connection that we thrive as a social species. And I think what I've seen um, in the regenerative organic movement, and again, particularly where there is leadership of communities of color and indigenous people who are reviving some of these traditions of being connected to other beings, human beings and non-human beings, 
uh, as relations. Um, so actually speaking of the soil and plants, for example, as you would a family member using subjective terms, mm -hmm. understanding relationships in that way, um, I think that's a really powerful response to the mental health epidemic um, that is connected to, I think, a lot of these industrial practices and processes and ways of being as well. So I think you're right on to say there's um, underlying these specific farming practices is a, just a totally different way of relating mm -hmm. to the non-human world um, that's healthy uh, on so many levels, I think, mm -hmm. for us as humans. Coming back to sort of what I, you know, called rocket science. So there's now, as you know, the, the microbiome science has kind of uh, drawn a lot of people into this field and into thinking in terms of ecosystems. And I'm definitely one of these people who, you know, has been trained as a, as a conventional gastroenterologist and has completely made a 180 degree in my, the way I see patients and, uh, you know, I see health now. Um, and what I've noticed is that there's similarities between, you know, the microbes in our gut and how they influence um, the roots, basically, of our body, which are in the gut. You know, it's the, it's the vagus nerve, it's cells that then transmit information up to the, the rest of the body and to the brain. Um, and so you've alluded to that in, in, in your writing as well, how important these microbes are in the soil, playing almost an analogous role to the to the gut microbes. You, you want to expand on that um, topic a little bit? Yeah, and you know who, um, who taught me about this was uh, Dr. Daphne Miller, um, her book, uh, Pharmacology, but also um, David Montgomery and Anne B. Clay, who yeah, wrote that yeah. wonderful book, The Hidden Half of Nature. And um, you know, there's this moment in the book where she's going through cancer and she's a biologist by training, so she's looking at all of these images, you know, that have been done of her body, and she's studying, you know, under a microscope what's going on inside her body. Yeah, yeah. And he, meanwhile, is looking at similar images of soil, and they're like, oh my gosh, we're looking at the same thing. <laughs> Aha! Yeah. There's this continuity between the microbial community that sponsors, you know, the plants that we eat when they're in the ground, and also helps us digest them. And doesn't that make perfect evolutionary sense? Um, and so both in our body and in the soil, we want to understand that community well enough to care for it and steward it. Yeah, it's another example of this, you know, this one health concept. I mean, the microbes clearly play a major role in this, um, both in the plant for the health of the, in, in the soil for the health of the plants and in our gut for the health of our bodies and the brains. Um, and much of the things they have been doing, you know, are parallel. So you talked about chemical fertilizers. So I talk about antibiotics and all kinds of medications that are aimed to, you know, fight the war against our microbial system without the doctors even paying attention to it. I mean, they, you know, the, the way my um, antibiotics are being prescribed, even in children, where the system is still evolving, is being completely oblivious on the collateral damage this has on, on, on this microbial ecosystem, just like, you know, industrial farmers do with, with the soil. So it's, it's intriguing how many parallels there are and, uh, you know, listening to you and, 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 and reading your uh, writings, like this, you know, this beautiful article in the Provisions, Provisions Journal um, certainly highlights that to, to a 
to a great degree. You know, I, I think it's, um, um, yeah, so I, I think I'm gonna, you know, come to an end here asking a question. We could probably talk for a long time and hopefully being uh, so close together in two UC sister uh, universities, uh, hopefully that won't be too difficult. I'll definitely come back to you and visit you sometime in your um, lab and, 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 and your operation. And, uh, but in the meantime, I would really like to thank you for this insightful uh, interview and um, yeah, wish you all the best. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely part in my, in my new book that, um, that some of the things we've talked about, you know, I'll, I'll try to incorporate into this. So thank well, you very much. Very much looking forward to that book. And it's, um, yeah, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And um, please don't be a stranger when we're back to uh, in-person connection. Definitely come visit me at Santa Barbara. That'd be wonderful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bye, Liz. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>